Good morning, church. This morning we're starting a new sermon series. We're going to be studying through three of the shortest books in the New Testament. Those three books are going to be 2nd and 3rd John and then the book of Jude. You can find those at the very end of your Bible if you turn to the book of Revelation and then go to the beginning of the book of Revelation. Those are the next three probably pages in your Bible. Um, No one of these is going to be longer than one page and uh, they're very short books. There are only four books in the New Testament. They don't have any chapters to them, so short they are. And uh, one of those is Philemon, which we are not going to be talking about. We've already kind of uh, summarized that when we talked about slavery um, out of Colossians. So this morning we're going to be studying through the first of these books in Second John. In each one of these books, we're going to see sort of two pairs of ideas played off of one another that sometimes we might think of being incongruous to one another. And today we're going to be looking at how both truth and love uh, work together. Second John belongs to, as we can tell by the title, the Johannine Corpus, which includes both his gospel, the book of Revelation, and three epistles, first, second, and third John. They're very aptly named. Now, if we read through and when we read through the letter, you will find that there is no mention of John in this book. Um, And so you might wonder how we know that it was actually written by John. There's a number of things that point in this direction. First, um, tradition has said since we've been able to record it that John the Apostle was the one who wrote this book. Secondly, because there isn't a name attached to it, we know that the person who wrote it had to have been incredibly well-known. Even Paul writes his name on every single letter. Uh, Even when there would be hardly any doubt that Paul wrote that letter, he still says, I, Paul, write this letter to you, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the churches in wherever. So because of that, and the fact that this book starts off with simply the elder, we would expect that this person would be immensely famous and well-known to these people. John fits that bill. And lastly, it doesn't take much to read through this little tiny epistle and to realize that it rings with all of the same sorts of ideas and concepts that his gospel and even the book of Revelation do. Specifically here, the comparison and contrast of truth and love with one another, uh, very Johannine um, concepts. And so we, we think that John wrote this book, even though it doesn't have his name in it. As John wrote this little letter, it is steeped with this comparison of truth and joy. And so as we read through these 13 verses, listen for how often he mentions these two things as we will talk about them today. If you have your Bibles with you, please do open them to Second John that we might read this together. The second letter of John, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. One of the first things you'll notice about Second John is the grave importance placed on truth. Truth is pictured as a way of life. In the opening verses, he says that I love in the truth. It is a way that he lives. He loves in the truth. It's a power that inspires. He says he loves because of the truth. It is because the truth that is in him that he actually is able to walk in love for this elect lady. It is even that which is near and close to us. He says that the truth abides in us. Given these characteristics, all of which are found simply in the first couple of verses in this letter, it might be odd that for John, first and foremost, the truth is commanded. The truth is commanded of us. Notice what he says. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. While truth here is depicted as having almost personal characteristics, which isn't out of sorts. I mean, we would expect that from an author who is able to write of Jesus that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is not just something that is out there that is impersonal. It's not facts that you read out of a history book, but in, for John's purposes, it is embodied in a person. It's understandable then that it is a way of life. It is something that abides in us and with us. Truth is more powerful and more active than simply facts on a page. Yet we are still commanded to walk in the truth, including one would think that we are inspired by the truth and helped by the truth. Nevertheless, it is a command from God. Now we are inundated today with the idea that our interactions with God and the way that we come to God, the way that we get things from God is primarily relational. We are to be united with him, certainly not by rote memorizations of creed and empty phrases, Not by confessions made through duty or tradition alone. Not through the rites of baptism in the Lord's Supper, important as they might be. Especially and assuredly, not through random religious acts that carry no grave importance for us. After all, the ringing confession of much of evangelicalism today is that it's a relationship, not a religion. Okay, you need to be prepared because this is a huge pet peeve of mine. Listen, you are in a religion. Let's let's have no qualms about that. Let's not hide that fact. You are not in a relationship, okay? You are, in a sense, in a relationship, but that relationship cannot be called a friendship or a relationship patterned after the world. It just doesn't look like that at all. We can think of Jesus as a brother and God as a friend, but thinking of them like that can never overwhelm or undermine in any way the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord or that God is the ruler, sovereign creator over all the earth. We have so imported the concept of religion from the culture and all of the concepts of religion that are bad and evil. And indeed, the way the culture defines religion, it is bad and evil. 
It's just doctrine piled upon doctrine and rule piled upon rule. Not to make your life better, not to give glory to God, but because some idiot behind a podium tells you that's the way it's supposed to be. Don't listen to idiots behind the podium. But we have done the same thing for friendship in its stead. We've rejected what the culture wants to see in religion, rightfully, but then we accept what they say about friendship and about God being our friend and God being close to us. Our understanding of friendship within Christianity and our relationship to God in Christianity is now so based on worldly ideas that we have rotted away the importance of solemnity and lordship in Christ and in God. We think of friends as equals, and they are. Those who we can make fun of, we can take criticism lightly from them. We can ignore their judgments on certain things. We can eject, reject advice from them. We don't think that our friends have a right to punish us or to discipline us. We can easily come to them over phone, Facebook, Twitter, email. We can even write them letters in the old form of mail. God is none of those things. You cannot approach God any way you would like. God makes that very clear. You cannot reject God's authority. You cannot reject the fact that he has the right to punish, to discipline, to met out judgment the way he sees fit simply because he is God. He gets to do those things because he's God, because he's created you. The Bible is replete with ideas like that. We can't reject that in favor of a relationship over and above religion. No, our understanding and interaction with the Lord is more than just that of relationship. It's of truth and therefore, it's one of religion. The push for relationship is the desire to distance Christianity from an abstract religion that cares only about the sovereign and powerful God who hands out rules, but it simply replaces that with a God who is loving and caring and intimate. But you can't have either of those two things without the other. You need a sovereign God who is intimate you need a powerful God who comes near to you. You need both of those things. Without both, you rot out the other. We can't treat God like this, and we cannot just approach God on feelings and emotions alone. We think of receiving from God the same thing that we get from friends. We get forgiveness, and we get comfort, we get love and emotional care and well-being. Provision of help and aid. Listen, God is certainly desirous and willing to give you all of those things. But it matters very, very much where, why, and how you get those things from God. You cannot approach him like you'd simply approach anyone. Where do we get these things from God? Where do we get love and friendship from God? We don't get it simply because he's God. We get it from the cross. It is only at the cross of Christ that we get forgiveness by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is only at the cross that we feel the comfort of God's love. It is only by the defeat of sin that we can ever, in this life or in the next one, have any sort of emotional stability. It isn't some sort of abstract thing that floats out there. It is something that has been done for you definitively. Why? Why do we get friendship and love from God? Is it just his job? I remember a theologian 
reiterating a story. He, he grew up in Quebec, and so he was fluent in French, but he had to work in German. So he went over to Germany to practice his German, and there he met an African fellow, an African fellow who grew up in a French-controlled colony, and so every once in a while, they would escape from the doldrums of German to speak French to one another. And he was talking to him one day, and he found out that this man was incredibly upset because back at his home, he found out that his wife was having an affair. And he, so he talked to the man. It turned out that the man had had many affairs, but his wife having an affair was not okay, and he was going to put things to rights when he got back. And the theologian looked at him, and he said, what do you think God makes of your affair? And he said, oh, well, God will forgive me. He said, why would God forgive you? He says, well, that's his job. That's what God does. Listen, God doesn't have to forgive a lick of you. Not one of you. He owes you nothing. He does not have to forgive you. It is not his job. He didn't write to the universe saying, listen, I'm a really good God. I'd be really awesome for you. If you take me in as your God, I will forgive you. It is part of my job description. I read it in the application. I got it out of the New York Times, so I know it's legit. And so I, I promise you, I will do everything I can do to be a forgiving God. And I, I, will, I will try not to be too mean or too arrogant or anything like that. Listen, God has created the universe. It's not his job to do anything for you. He is God. You are the creature. You don't get to come to God however you want to. Why does God love us? God loves us because he's gracious. Because by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the wrath of God was removed from us. His anger was taken away. He was propitiated. He is no longer angry with us. More than that, because of the sacrifice of Christ, our Sin has been cleansed and payment on our behalf has been made. The enmity between us and God is now broken and the enmity between us and Satan is rekindled. These things are necessary for the love, comfort, and care of souls by God. Nothing else provides this but the cross. Why does God love you? He loves you because he has cleared for you who believe by the basis of Jesus Christ on the cross. And how? How are such things applied to us? It's only through the proclamation of the gospel to the nations, to the world, to those in Bay City, Saginaw, and Midland. It is only through that that they will come to know the love of God. The love of God does not exist over all the peoples of the world like an invisible liquid vapor that sort of covers all of them magically and mystically. It doesn't work like that. Romans 10, 13 through 17 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Listen, the love of God doesn't just exist out in the world, it exists at the cross. And the cross is applied through the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. These are not emotions. These are not feelings. These are unassailable, unmitigated, objective truths that we preach. We walk in these things. We do not walk in a relationship alone, and we do not walk simply in feelings and well wishes. We don't believe that such things are applied to us by an abstract quality of God's love, but rather only through the preaching 
of the Son of Jesus, or the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is real, it is tangible, and it is physical. It is present here for you in preaching, just as he was physically present on the cross, bleeding and dying and suffering for our sin. In other words, the great emotional benefits, and there are emotional benefits, and there are the provision of peace and love and joy and all of those things that the world wants, there are those provisions for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. But they come through doctrine. They come through truth. They come through teaching. The Spirit of God in all of his work is not untethered ever from the Word of God and the right preaching of the Word. Truth is commanded of us. We need to be clear. This doesn't make Christianity cold. Doctrine should never cool you off. It shouldn't make you a robot who only wants to spout propositional truth. Rather, the truth should give fire to our relationship with God. It gives the relationship teeth. Listen, if, if all of your relationship is built only on feeling, it's built only on the fact that God loves you, you know where that, that preaches? That preaches in 20th century America. You know how that doesn't preach? The prisons of China. In the absolute barren land of Africa. Because those people don't think that God loves them because they're not surrounded by all of the pleasures and ease of life that we are. There's a reason why that kind of stuff doesn't work there unless it's held out as a fake promise to them that they can too be like Americans. No, it doesn't make our relationship cold, but it should fuel our relationship with God. We often think of of feeling simply on the mountaintop. But listen, the mountaintop isn't where most of us live. You might have peaks of joy and happiness, but life isn't lived there. It's just not. If, if your life is lived there, please write me out a recipe for it and I will share it with everybody. But I doubt very highly that that's the case. It is very rare that we get to spin around with Julie Andrews on Nazi-controlled mountains singing about how beautiful everything is. One of my favorite songs, which isn't a great song, but I like it all the same. And Gordon Lightfoot sings in the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, where does the love of God go when the waves turn the minutes to hours? So if your concept of God's love is only based in how you feel, it's only based in your emotion, what happens when death comes knocking at your door? Where does all of the love that you feel like you receive from God, not based in doctrine, when there is no evidence of God's love anywhere in your life, where does it go? What are you hanging your hat on? Where does the love of God go when you're about to sink and die and you're just waiting for the waves to come over your face for the last time? If you don't walk in truth, your relationship with God isn't based on any sort of doctrine. It's simply based on a feeling in those difficult times of valleys and death you will fall back on nothing. Your whole life rests on a shadow. Your God is nothing more than physical comfort and a full belly. You worship nothing. Nothing worth worshiping anyway. You've built your life on shifting stands and not the rock as we have sung on. When the rain comes and the storm falls, your sand castle will be wiped away 
and your destruction will be great. Therefore, we are commanded to walk in the truth. Know your God. Know the gospel both in fact and in life. Walk in it. And again, look at how John talks. This is not devoid of joy. He says, I rejoiced to find that. He talks about meeting with this sister and asking that they can meet face to face so that their joy would be complete. It doesn't lack emotion, but it grounds and founds the emotion that you are to have. The full force of God's love is only felt on the bedrock of truth. What is further than this is we find that even love is commanded of us. We are commanded to love. Again, we come full circle round back to the center of emotions and feelings. A lot of our culture today is based on the idea that love is something that sort of wells up in you like a bad cough that you can't control and it points itself at someone that you don't pick or choose. I fell in love. Right? We talk like that. People, you know marriages that have broken up because a husband will look at his wife and say, I just don't love her anymore. As though love was like a wagon that you rode on that you just sort of fall out of. We've grown apart. We just don't love one another anymore. Emotion trumps everything. One of my favorite movies Oh, brother, where art thou? They say, it is a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of a human heart. And that's what we think. We think, listen, love is just something that happens. It's an emotion that overwhelms me. I can't be commanded to love people. But then on the flip side of that, we all know that that's just bunk. Christ, the church, and culture all command you to love people. You are inundated every single day with commands to love people. All you need is love. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Make love, not war. I forget which one Christ said. But it's all the same, eh? The, the command is there. You have to love one another. You, you can't hate. Hate is the sin of our age. You can't hate people. We clearly think that love can be commanded and it can be manufactured. There are a couple of vast differences, though, between Christians and the way that they love and the world and the way that they want to love. Listen, the world will tell you to love, but quite often, the love that the world has for one another only comes to those they already love. They do not. They do not. And they've shown themselves, not everybody, I'm generalizing here, so if you pick out particular people, perhaps they can do this, but generally speaking, the world loves people that love them. You're not to love the people who hate. So you are to be tolerant of those who are tolerant, but you're supposed to be intolerant to the people who are intolerant, but you don't call it intolerance. You call it just being a real person or something. You cloak it in different language. You can hate those who hate, but you have to love those who love, which sounds a lot like loving the people who love you back. But you're allowed to hate your enemies. You can walk up and sucker punch a neo-Nazi leader, Richard Spencer, in the face and get applauded by Natasha Leonard in an online and important and prestigious magazine called The Nation who applauds 
random violence on the street as a way of gaining political ends. He is, after all, a neo-Nazi, so why not? You are to love people who are different than you. Especially, though, you're supposed to love people who look a lot like you, because we just had that women's march, and that was really important, unless you were, unless you were pro-life. And then you are allowed to be spit on, and that's okay, because I'm sure the spit came from the heart, or the back of the throat, which is kind of near the heart, so it was really done in love, right? Like, you can go on and on and on with illustrations of this, and it's not just on the left, it's on the right, too. Plenty of people who are only willing to love one another because they get love from them. We, as Christians, are not called to love like that. That is not our love. We are commanded not to love those who love us and to hate our enemies, but we are called to love everybody. That includes those people who just got done sucker punching us in the face and spitting on us. Matthew 6. 44 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than every other person? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen. Do you know what Nazis, liberal fascists, conservative fundamentalists, neo-Nazis, good Christian people all have in common? They all love people who love them. You get nothing for that. You get a reward for that, and it's called the love that you got from the other person. That's it. In other words, Jesus is saying, everybody does that. From the worst person on up, everybody does that. But what are you called for? You are called to love like God the Father loves. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the sun to rise on people who love him and people who hate him. He sends sun and he sends rain. These make plants for eating, trees for shelter and fire, which can be used to forge metal, right? Which can be used to build industry, to make cars, to make cell phones, on which you can post how God hasn't given you anything. And in your wickedness and your idolatry, you know what he's going to do? He will bring up the sun tomorrow and he will bring the rain in their time. He shows his love to all evil, wicked, good, and bad alike. This is how we are to love one another. We are to love one another tirelessly, every morning providing mercy and grace for those who hate us, turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile. This is the command for Christians. We do not respond with hate to those who hate us, but we respond in love and in kindness. But this command to love one another is not just to love the world, although we're not wrong to think that. Listen to the words of 2 John 5. He says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And compare that to John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. The point of loving one another is not just to love everyone in the world, but specifically the people of the church. It is by loving one another who are disciples of Christ that you demonstrate the love of God. The call to loving one another is not just the call to love everyone in the culture, but specifically the people who are sitting next to you that you have covenanted with in fellowship. Galatians 6.10, Paul says this, So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is how Christians are to love in a nutshell. You are to love everyone. You are to do good to everyone and especially pour it out to the people who are of the faith. You are to have your love specially placed upon them. Just as our love is for others, even our enemies, is based on God's love, so this special love is also based on Christ's special love for his people. I remember when I was interviewing for a church in Kentucky. This wasn't last week, so don't forget. <laughs> even if it was, they would have turned me down, so you're stuck with me. Um, I was interviewing for a church in Kentucky, and this sweet old woman, knowing where I was from, looked at me, and I think that this was one of their concerns so that they didn't articulate it well, and she said, does Jesus love everyone? And I, I answered without any hesitation, well, of course, he, he loves everyone. He is kind and merciful to all. Right? Over the weeks, I got to thinking about that, and I knew where she was coming from. She knew that I was from Southern. She knew that I was probably fairly reformed in my soteriology, and she knew that I probably held to election. And so, given as many people as I've met with, with that kind of background, poor preaching on what the doctrine of election is and, and so many people who think the doctrine of election is that God loves some and hates everybody else, I wrote them a letter. And I said, I think that I need to be more clear about what I say when I say God loves everyone. He loves everyone, but he doesn't love everyone the same. I didn't hear back from them after that. Never mind scripture passages like Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Even passages that speak of God's sweet love for his people, the most intimate of, of love that you can have for his people when he calls himself a husband to his bride. Think of what that means for us. If we are to pattern ourselves after how God loves, what does it mean for a husband to love his bride? I'm called to love everybody. We just got done saying this. Everybody in this room, I'm called to love them, right? Man, woman, child, or beast. Some of you are sometimes. You're beastly. But regardless of what you look like, I'm called to love you. But I am not called to love anyone in this room the way I'm called to love my wife. It's different. It's particular. It's sweet. It's more intimate than I love any of the other rest of you. Some of you are very glad about that. Now listen, that's the same way. Christ loves his wife in a way that he does not love the rest of the world. He has a special love for his bride and a special attachment to her. And so we too, while we are to love the world, we are to have a special love for the people of the church. But nevertheless, as we are to love those of the faith, we can easily run into trouble because truth and love will sometime knock heads. And that's exactly what we get beginning in verse 7. John talks about some having gone out into the world. They don't want to confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He calls them deceivers, antichrists. He says that they don't have God. 
You need to truly love others by encouraging them to walk in the truth. Why is John glad earlier that only some have walked in the truth? Because clearly a grave number of them have left the church. They've gone their own way. They, they refuse to admit that Christ has come in the flesh. For whatever reason, they have decided that the incarnation could not have been Christ coming in the flesh. It is likely connected to some sort of Platonistic thought that, frankly, is still creeping through Western civilization. Almost every form of Greek thought is eventually creeping through us that the spirits are good. To be spiritual is good. To be material and worldly is bad, right? We get some of this as we even read this morning from the Areopagus when Paul goes up to the center of all of Greek philosophy and the Areopagus and is giving his presentation of the gospel and eventually he says that God has previously overlooked all of the sin of the Gentiles but now he's coming to claim them and lead them into repentance. And he says this, that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know that this man will be the man to judge the world? Paul says, because he raised him from the dead. And in verse 32, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Listen, death is the release from the physical prison that we're in. Why would he be raised again? physical. This didn't make any sense to the Greeks. And eventually, that made so little sense to the Greeks that when it became time to talk of Christ as deity and God, it made no sense at all for God to clothe himself fully in human flesh. And so they denied that Christ had come in the flesh. Alternatively, it could also be read that they were denying that he would return in the flesh. Maybe he came in the flesh the first time, but the second time, certainly not. That's ridiculous. Not only does this come in contact with the resurrection as we have here, but also obviously the incarnation. How then were these Christians supposed to treat them? Having denied the truth of this doctrine, having denied this central and important part of Christianity, how were the Christians supposed to interact with them? Notice what he says in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Love encourages walking in the truth. Certainly this seems even more so then than today, like a statement of no love for them at all. There weren't inns, there weren't motels. These people tentatively calling themselves Christians would show up and they would say, we need housing and you were to say, you were to turn them out to the streets. And you were to let them live homelessly. Listen, in the Middle East, this is not a minor deal. This is a huge deal. It is a huge deal to not receive someone into your home that is seeking help in that way. Hospitality is taken as being an immensely important thing, not only in the early church, but simply in the first century life. Much more so than it is for us today because there are hotels and there are inns that people can go to. It doesn't seem like this is very loving. But there's a flip side to that. John never calls for these people to be hated, but he certainly will not give them a platform to spread untruths that would lead people away from the truth. 
His love for the church trumps his love for these people. And so he will not give them a platform which would lead other people away from the truth. Listen to what he says back in verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. May not lose is weak, ESV, so that what we've worked for won't be destroyed. Listen, if you invite these people in, they will crush everything, possibly. And we don't want that to happen, so please do not welcome them. If you welcome them, you are tarnished with what they preach and what they say. You've given them a platform for it, and your people cannot stand that. You need to encourage people to walk in the truth, and by inviting these people in and allowing them to live with you, you would not be doing that. By giving those who break central tenets of the gospel no ground to stand on, we deny them any chance to encourage others to follow them. One of the best ways for us to love one another is to encourage one another to walk in the truth. Listen, theology is not just for pastors and theologians. Doctrine is not just for me. It is for you. It's for every single person in this church. We should be steeped in it, not simply to gain knowledge or to have an opportunity to look down on others who haven't thought through the faith as well as we have. Rather, we know good doctrine so that we live more faithfully productive lives and so that we can all the more encourage one another to do the same. Therefore, we study. We learn who Christ was, what he did, and why it mattered. We think about the perfections of God and how we might better model those perfections in our own lives. We study his revelation not simply so that we can hold on to well-worn traditions, but so that we might better understand where we stand in those traditions and where to tear them down. We study to know better that we might walk in the truth. Listen, this truth is never a private truth. This isn't something that you study on your own and you go back to your enclave and you think better of yourself about. It is truth that is proclaimed. It is proclaimed from the pulpit. It is proclaimed in conversations. It is encouraged, passed down from one person to the next in terms of wisdom, in terms of sharing devotionals, in terms of encouraging one another. In all of it, we hand down truth from one person to another. We teach, we instruct, we train, we rebuke, we reprove, we call to action. We do this so that we can be equipped for every good work. We also model it for other people. We don't just talk about doctrine. We don't just talk about love, but we actually put these things into action. We speak so highly of God's mercy. Be merciful. To speak of God's mercy and to not be merciful to people is to not understand the very words that come out of your mouth. You are displaying that you don't know, that you don't understand every time you act unmercifully to someone. We speak of forgiveness. We teach that Jesus Christ can forgive you on the cross. Listen, if you are unwilling to forgive your brother, you do not know the forgiveness of Christ. We read that the epitome of love is laying down our lives for one another, so we do it daily. We daily decide that we will count one another as more honorable than ourselves and live our lives in submission to them so that we can demonstrate the love of God to them. Love that lacks truth is no love at all. It isn't love. It's false. It is empty platitudes and well wishes without foundations. But truth that lacks love is also no truth at all. It is a lie. And it's a dangerous one. 
It is empty facts and statements void of power. Friends, let us love in truth and proclaim the truth in love. For in doing so, we provide both one another the foundation and the power by which we can glorify Christ in this world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you providing revelation for us that you can tell us these grand and important truths that we might live out in our lives. We thank you that in your kindness you have given the truth to us. We don't have to grope in the dark to try and find you, but you have told us of yourself. You've sent your Son and your apostles to give us knowledge and understanding. We thank you also that you've sent your Spirit enlightening our hearts not only to love you, but to love others in that truth so that we might have a foundation for knowing your love and walking in it. May you be glorified by our lives, Father. May your Son be glorified by our love for one another. And may your Spirit quicken us to both love more truthfully and more truthfully love. Amen.